0: Welcome to Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer, where cancer survivors, caregivers, and others touched by cancer share their stories. The Max Mallory Foundation presents this podcast in honor and memory of Max Mallory, who died at age 22 from testicular cancer. I'm your host, Joyce Lofstrom, a young adult and adult cancer survivor, and Max's mom. Hi, this is Joyce, and with me today is Mike Craycraft, and many of you might know Mike uh, for his work in testicular cancer, and also he established the Testicular Cancer Society. So, Mike, I am so glad you could be with me today, and welcome.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Joyce.
0: So, I want to start out, as I do on most of the, the discussions that we have, is just Tell us a little bit about your testicular cancer story. What happened when? Whatever you would like to share.
1: Sure. Well, I was diagnosed in 2006. I ended up having stage one seminoma, uh, but kind of had an unusual journey in that I originally had felt a lump uh, back in October of 2005 and waited over seven months to go in to see the doctor. Uh, Miraculously, I was still stage one, but during that time, live my life uh, literally like I was dying. I knew right away in my own mind that it was cancer, uh, but it took a a lot of doing to get me into the doctor.
0: You know, I've heard that from other uh, young men I've interviewed. And so why do you think you waited, if I can ask?
1: Oh, I mean, part of it was a little bit of a denial, probably a little bit of fear. But the biggest thing was really not wanting to upset others. So, you know, it's, Knowing that I had cancer, how am I going to come out and and tell my family and friends that that you know that's what I have as weird as it sounds, it was easier to convince myself that I was gonna die of metastatic disease than it was to to try to figure out how do I you know break everyone's heart and tell them that I'm sick?
0: That's interesting, but I think it's also probably common among other people as well. um I appreciate your you sharing that. I think that might help some other of our listeners as they they hear what that you faced when you went through it. So you said you're still at stage one. Anything you can share about the treatment you had to go through?
1: Yeah, well, at the time for stage one seminoma, the gold standard was still three weeks of radiation therapy, just as adjuvant to keep the cancer from coming back. There was some work being done on surveillance and even a little less on carboplatin. Um, So I really, after doing nothing for myself for seven months, really, uh, saturated myself in the literature and, and the experts at the time and, and decided that even back then that surveillance was the way to go. And, you know, luckily, 14 years later, that's the gold standard now and the right decision. So I lucked out.
0: Oh, you did. That's wonderful. I should mention to our listeners that Mike is a registered pharmacist. So he has uh, expert knowledge that we want to draw from during the interview. But also, I think that probably helped you a little bit as well in, in, understanding, I guess, what you were up against in the diagnosis.
1: Certainly in understanding the disease, it didn't help me getting into the doctor. And that's one of the things I looked at is if I can do that as a healthcare professional, I'm sure there's a lot more people like me out there doing the same thing.
0: Yes, I would agree. I would agree. Um, Sometimes we are our own worst enemies, I guess another question I want to ask about your diagnosis is as you went through all of that, and I think you probably just answered it, but I was going to ask, what was your biggest challenge when you heard the diagnosis? And then you said you went mostly it was surveillance, but any, anything that just hit you that maybe you couldn't get over?
1: Yeah. I mean, when the doctor said that, you know, the ultrasound looked like it was going to most likely be cancer, it wasn't a shock to me. I knew for seven months on my own mind that it was. So my experience there was a little bit different. The physician also knew me from the medical center and said, you know, I'm going to make sure you get the best care, uh, which certainly meant a lot to me. I think one of the most difficult things and things guys still face today, especially with early stage disease, is deciding on the treatment options after diagnosis. And my physicians very much wanted me involved in that decision making, which is great. I, there needs to be a lot of patient autonomy uh, but realizing that there is no bad decision and having to work through the treatments that are going to be best for you. I think sometimes it's easier when someone just tells you what to do, you're going to have to do this. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's it's a great benefit for early stage disease, but it also can create a lot of uh, anxiety and stress.
0: Well, I think that's a good segue to my next question is, how did you then decide to establish the Testicular Cancer Society?
1: Well, at the time, there weren't a lot of resources available for testicular cancer, and the ones that were available were difficult to find. I had scoured everywhere uh, looking for other survivors and and thought, well, maybe if I could create a hub where, you know, if people could find us, then we could show them where, you know, the active forums are or the active websites instead of searching around and finding just dead ends everywhere. uh, I also thought with my survivor experience, and then also my medical background, uh, that I was kind of uniquely positioned to to try to help others. Um, And so that's how the whole thing came about, really.
0: Well, I have to say, I've used your uh, website and the information on it. uh, When Max, my son, went through his testicular cancer journey, and one of the resources i found most helpful and i've mentioned it in this podcast and another show is the list of experts that you have on your resource center page i i think that's so valuable to people trying to understand where to go to find care and if you did find care then if you have questions or maybe need a second opinion uh, these physicians that you have and it's for physicians across the world not just in the us i i, I really Think that is important for people to know about it. I'm curious how you identified the, these different doctors and just any thoughts you have on the list and how patients could use it. Other than, you know, I just said I, I, I used it a lot for reference, and we actually did go see one of the doctors on it. So,
1: yeah, so the list is really maintained by our, our friend Doug Bank specifically at the Testicular Cancer Resource Center. And it's really just, it's essentially physicians that have dedicated their careers to testicular cancer. Uh, It isn't just an aside for them, it's really what they've specialized in. And when we look uh, specifically with testicular cancer, so there's what's called the National Cancer Database uh, here in the U.S., and out of 1,500 medical centers in the database, less than 20 of them see 20 or more new testicular cancer patients a year. So it's oh, not it, Oh wow. So the vast okay. majority of guys are, are treated in the periphery at medical centers, and you know, the treatment of testicular cancer is not all that s- difficult uh, as long as the patients are reacting properly. Um, but it also means that most physicians don't have a whole bunch of experience. And sometimes treatments can be just as much art as it is science. And so having the ability to reach out to physicians that see 50, or 100 patients a year. Uh, It really is important and make come to the sun in nuanced treatment decisions.
0: You know, you're right, and we found that too. We talked to two different doctors for the RPL&D surgery that Max had to have, and we were quite uh, uninformed, I'll say, about it, not realizing how involved that surgery is. And what you just described is very accurate because – one physician had lots of experience and this was his main uh, purpose in life. I'll say it that way. And that's where we wound up going. And the other physician, you know, it wasn't that same background. And so I think the way you described it is important. It makes it very clear on why people should look at that list. And I didn't realize that out of all the medical centers, people could go to only 20 have, uh, a team that really focuses solely or especially on testicular cancer. That's important, I think, to know. Um, My other question around some of the work you've done is on the uh, Ball Checker app. Can you talk about that too? I think that's another, uh, just a, a great resource for men to know about.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we develop a mobile app that's very simple. It gives a couple of little facts about testicular cancer and, more importantly, how to do a a monthly self-exam and the ability to set a monthly reminder. And then we sophomorically tell people to go to to just ballchecker.com to download it. And what we found is, you know, nowadays the the traditional brochures, we actually had one event uh, with some nursing students at uh, Rutgers, And they came back to us and said, you know, listen, no one picked up the full size brochure. And we had little tiny business cards with how to do a self-exam on it. And they said, but we noticed guys would take that and hide it in their pocket as they were walking away. And so the thought is, if we could develop a simple app that can be distributed worldwide, that really just gives guys the, the tidbit of information that they need. And then if they do find an issue, they have the resources to get back in contact with us.
0: That's great. And especially now everything is, you know, is mobile and an app like that is just, it's a perfect option. So now I want to talk a little bit about your pharmacy expertise and just what you can share with us about the different kinds of chemotherapy that uh, some of the patients go through. I know in talking with some of the other young men, uh, this topic is always comes up and there's many facets to it that we could talk about. My first question is just really about your role as a pharmacist or any pharmacist uh, when it comes to putting all the chemo combinations together. And I know that you've told me, too, that your expertise was not, all, it was not in uh, testicular cancer or chemotherapy, but I know you could talk about this to us and explain it. But I guess I really want to know what happens when the drugs actually get to the patient in the hospital room. Just kind of, I'm looking at the process, Mike, I guess is what I really want to talk about.
1: Sure, sure. In, in the hospital, and essentially my entire career has been in hospitals. So, you know, it's a complex um, procedure. There's so many steps between the time the patient gets there until the chemotherapy gets infused. Uh, the the pharmacist role is is more than just simply, you know, mixing the drugs and getting there. It's making sure that the schedule's right, the doses are right looking at your labs and and other um, vital signs and making sure that everything's appropriate uh, to be given. So, you know, sometimes that can cause a little bit of delay. I think anybody that's gotten chemotherapy has gone through that delay, either waiting for labs to come back or the drugs to come up or even making sure the proper pre-medications are there. And sometimes even intervening when, you know, labs might indicate that in a typical patient the drugs should be held, you know, But testicular cancer, it can be a little different. The pharmacist can help push to say, you know, we really maybe shouldn't be holding that today or those kind of things. So,
0: I know one thing that I thought was uh, admirable and necessary, but I had not experienced it before, was when Max was having his treatment, pharmacists actually came to the room and talked to us and talked about... um, what was going to happen. And some, as you mentioned, the, the pre-drugs that you take perhaps for nausea or some of the other side effects, I'll say. And uh, do you find that a common practice now in pharmacy where, I'll say for cancer in the chemo treatment, but we're pharmacists, I know they're part of the team, but, you know, do they interact more with the patient actually in the room or, you know, I'm just interested in your insights on that.
1: Right. Each infusion center and their educational process is going to be a little bit different. But yeah, the pharmacists do in the hospital play a very active role in the patient's care, either if it's rounding with the, the medical team or the oncology team or any number of different ways. But essentially, when you're in the hospital in any capacity, anytime there's a medication ordered, the pharmacist is going to be reviewing that before it actually gets to you.
0: So I but my question was around the role of the pharmacist when someone is in the hospital or specifically in this testicular cancer treatment because as uh, I remember when Max was there having his chemo infusions, the pharmacist did come in and speak to us and go through some of the medications and ask us how we could you know work with him or her I mean how how we could just interact more. And I had never experienced that before. I haven't had chemo either, but I mean, I've been in the hospital and I was just very impressed that the pharmacist actually um, came in and spent time and, and talked with us about what was going on medication-wise. Can you comment on that based on your experience and just how the pharmacist now is appears to be more in front of the patient, I'll say?
1: Yeah, I well, pharmacists, especially in a, in a hospital setting, really do have an active role uh, in the care of the patient. So, you know, not only did they review every order that comes across, uh, so before a patient gets a medication, a pharmacist has already looked at it. Um, in particular, with testicular cancer, or, you know, just oncology in general, that's, you know, reviewing the regimen, making sure the doses are right, making sure the timing is right, how fast the medication is supposed to be run over technical things like that, as well as reviewing labs uh, and making sure that the doses are appropriate to give on the the particular days. Uh, The educational component can be a little bit different in each facility, whether a pharmacist will be there at bedside or not, Uh, but it extends not just from the oncology setting, even uh, as inpatient. Pharmacists really do play an active role in rounding with the medical teams, to reviewing patients, and even in specialized situations like infectious disease or cardiac care, where the, we have a pharmacist and a medical center that specializes just in that to oversee and make sure each person gets the right the right care that they need.
0: So now let's talk about the specific at least three of the drugs for testicular cancer: uh, bleomycin, topside, and cisplatin. I know that's a very common combination. Uh, all three, or maybe two. Can you just Give us a brief description about those three drugs and the benefits of them when it comes to testicular cancer.
1: Well, I, just in generalities, so when you look at all three drugs, each one of them has a beneficial effect on testicular cancer in and of itself. And then when you add them together, you get a synergistic effect. So it's, you know, one plus one isn't two, it's three or four. Um, so finding drugs that are individually active, uh, that have synergistic effects, and then also have different toxicity profiles uh, is really important. And that's where they come up with these combinations, whether it's it's the, the bleomycin atopicide cisplatin or just the atopicide cisplatin. Um, finding those synergies and different toxicities is really what lends to the beneficial benefit.
0: I think you've answered the next Question I had, which is why different drugs are used for different types of testicular cancer. In my first thought was that well, different kinds of cancer cells will react in a certain way to certain drugs. Does, is that what it is, or is there? I'm sure there's more to it than just that.
1: No, it, it's really that simple. You know, is it a different mechanism of action for destruction of the cancer cells, and can you? you know try two different mechanisms that you know will will yield an even better benefit Uh, typically for testicular cancer the the drugs themselves are fairly straightforward you know regardless if you have seminoma or non-seminoma it's just the the degree of what you need so you know there are some lesser uh, chemotherapy regimens can be used you know for stage one disease to keep the, the, the cancer from coming back and then when you have patients that don't originally respond that's usually because of resistance to the cisplatin itself, uh, which then obviously is not a good situation and, and takes more aggressive treatments.
0: So then another question on drugs, not chemo drugs. And it's just, I know there's so many other drugs or medications that help people get through chemo. There's drugs for nausea, I think headaches, pain. And my question on that is just, you know, you, the patient, really don't know what those are coming in. And obviously, you rely on the medical team, including the pharmacist, to make sure that you get what you need. I kind of get the feeling that the sky's the limit. Like, if I have this situation, nausea, I can ask for a pain or a medication for that. If I have a headache, does that make sense, Mike, what I'm trying to say? It's just there's so many drugs out there, but how do you uh, manage that as a patient and with a pharmacist?
1: Yeah, well, you know, in most medical centers that are familiar with the treatment protocols for testicular cancer, it comes with a pretty much a a preset cocktail of mixtures, so to speak, uh, for supportive care. And that supportive care really has changed dramatically over the years. You know, I've had the pleasure of meeting survivors from the late 70s and early 80s, and Dr. Einhorn at IU, you know, talks about it, that the first day of chemotherapy, the average patient would have thrown up 12 times. And nowadays, that, that average is less than one. And that's really because of the supportive care. It's not because we changed the chemo regimens. So there, there are so many different symptoms and, and trying to figure out, you know, what it could be. Some patients might develop a cough uh, because they're having a lot of reflux, you know, so it's not necessarily treating the cough itself versus treating the reflux or the, you know, the acid indigestion that will reduce the cough. So sometimes it can be tricky. There's a plethora of supportive agents out there. I don't know how much control each individual could really have over it, except being open about the side effects or or the experiences that they're having with their treatment team.
0: So one last question on the pharmacy topic. And I'm curious how, with the team, because you mentioned sometimes the pharmacist will go on rounds with the medical team. When you have a, you, the team has a meeting about XYZ patients or just in general, is the pharmacist always there? How do pharmacists interact, I guess, with the team in in terms of, and I ask that question more for assurance for patients uh, to know that that you, the pharmacist, uh, you're part of that medical team and are helping to make sure that there's a whole uh, complete package of treatment, which uh, is a given in, in a medical center. But I, I don't think I understood it as, as much as I should have, the role of a pharmacist.
1: Well, I mean, a pharmacist is just another member of hopefully a multidisciplinary team that's, that's overseeing the care for each patient. And, and I think one of the best examples I have is very early on in my career, uh, we had a multidisciplinary meeting on a patient and the dietitian uh, who was overseeing, you know, uh, the nutritional needs of the patient noticed that the patient's liver enzymes were becoming elevated. Um, and I was able to look at the medications they were taking and realize that they were probably getting a little bit too much Tylenol than they should have. And so we were able to cut it down and and have the liver enzymes reduced. So it's really having that look from all sorts of different angles and so many different eyes on the patient that you can catch things. And then perhaps it's because of a different discipline, um, find the solution to it. So that's why it's so important to have those multidisciplinary uh, reviews of each individual.
0: That answers my question. And I'm also glad you mentioned the dietician because I think nutrition is such an important part of, of health care and, and managing your health. So, well, what are you doing now? Tell us about your life, what, 12 years since your diagnosis and what's going on?
1: Yeah, for, 14 years since the diagnosis 14, okay. in June, yeah you know, just keeping on, keeping on, um, trying to reach as many young, healthy individuals as we can and make sure that they're aware of testicular cancer. And then, you know, making sure that we're there for, for those affected by the disease and assuring that they're getting the best care and have the resources they need to get through. You know, our our goal is that hopefully one day the testicular cancer diagnosis will be a, a small bump uh, and the individuals will get back to living their lives and our mission will be fulfilled.
0: Can you give our listeners uh, the URL to your uh, website and anything you want to share about the Testicular Cancer Society that they no- should know about, other than what you already have told us? So, yeah,
1: I don't. I don't know how much more. You know, obviously, we rely on the public support to, to be able to help uh, continue with our mission. Our website is just testicularcancersociety.org. dot org. If you're looking to try to get someone convinced to uh, download our free app, again, that's simply tell them to go to ballchecker.org. Usually young guys will find that a little cheeky and, and go ahead and do it.
0: Okay. And my last question, what advice do you have to any young man that might think he has testicular cancer or is going through treatment now?
1: Well, I think there's two different parts there. One, if you know, a guy notices something different with their testicles. Obviously, getting in and mentioning to the physician in a timely manner, uh, the sooner the better is certainly what needs to be done. Physicians and healthcare professionals don't find it awkward if you bring up the subject, uh, even though as an individual, you might feel it could be a little awkward. Um, You know, the earlier it's caught, certainly the easier it is to treat. Even if it's a benign condition, the peace of mind of just going in and getting checked out, and believe me, I went through seven months of not having peace of mind, can be tremendous. If you do end up being diagnosed with testicular cancer, certainly we're here to help you from literally the I feel a lump to the ultrasound, understanding what each uh, individual step is and, and really making sure that you know the disease and, and you know making sure that you have the right questions to ask your doctor to make sure you get the best care. I mean, that's ultimately what we're here for as well.
0: Thank you, Mike. I think that's uh, wonderful advice to end our discussion on and uh, gives people ideas of what to do if they are concerned about testicular cancer. So thank you for being with me. I really appreciate your time.
1: Well, thank you for having me and thanks for everyone for listening.
0: Thanks so much for joining me today on Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer from the Max Mallory Foundation. We have a website, and it's at MaxMalloryFoundation.com, where you can learn more about testicular cancer, donate, and also send your ideas for guests on the podcast. And for spelling, Mallory is M-A-L-L-O-R-Y. Please join me next time for Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer.